as we continue our study of great words of the Christian faith, we want to um, remind you of, um, as Reagan did, our annual church council that's coming up uh, the first of April, first Sunday in April. Um, we have it early on Sunday afternoon so that you can still get to uh, your groups that evening. And uh, we encourage you to come and help us uh, celebrate what God has done in our annual meeting. And we also want to say thank you for your support of Generations. Um, I think right now, I, I sh I'll try to have a better report for you next week, um, a little more exact and precise. But I think we're at uh, about 40000 that has been given and the pledges are at about 130,000, I think. And we know that God has got other ways of bringing in funds. So we thank you for your support for that. We are excited about that. And um, keep your eyes open. There's gonna be a special celebration of uh, a Good Friday over at the property. We'll be talking to you more about that as we get closer. Right now, let's look at the screen and let's follow our tradition as we pray the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we bring the two things to you today in prayer. Um, and Justin has led us. We pray for the situation in the Ukraine. We pray, uh, we continue to pray those 10 prayer points that we sent out a few days ago. We ask that you would help us to be diligent in praying so that we see results because we know some things happen when we pray that don't happen if we don't pray. So we want to pray for the Ukraine. We want to pray for our nation and for all of the uh, uh, others that will be impacted by what goes on there. Father, we ask that you would help us today to hear not only about adoption, but help us to understand how loved we are and how willing you are to help us. I think we are so discouraged and depressed in some ways that our goal is just survival, and we've forgotten the extravagant love of God for us. We don't ever want to live in a way that dishonors your treatment of us as your children. So keep your hand on us and help us to understand today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Now, we have been um, talking about great words of the Christian faith you remember, you've got this in your bulletin or the notes online. There's this uh, lovely card that by the time we're through is going to have about 13 or so definitions on it. Um, we talked about words that reflect our choice. Now, these are not new words. They're not new concepts. But we wanted to take you to the heart of those concepts so that they aren't just in our vocabulary, but we understand what they mean, and we understand what they're, uh, what they're there for. We said there were three words that reflect our choice. Number one, we learned the value of our choice to repent. Number two, we reflect on our value 
uh, or the value of our choice to have faith or receive faith. And we reflect thirdly on the need and the meaning of confession. We confess our sin and we confess our faith. Now, we also understand this. Um, <coughs> excuse me. We also understand that it's spring in South Carolina in spite of the weather. Um, we, we realize that repentance, faith, and confession, it's our choice. But as we've said, we can't even make the choice unless God enables us to do so. Um, and he, he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast them away. Then we said, number two, we're going, there are about four groups, uh, <laughs> still spring. We want, we want to talk about words that reflect the change. Now, there's three words that reflect the change that occurs in us. Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about confession. What, um, I, I mean conversion. What happens when we are converted? There are some things that change. There are some things that change in us and around us. Last week, we talked about regeneration. When we choose to accept Jesus, we are born again by the Spirit of God. That was the word Jesus used when talking to Nicodemus. Um, we we're born again. We are regenerated. But today we want to talk about adoption. Now, adoption, I think, I think that arguably adoption is the word least understood of the dozen or so few more words that we will talk about. And I think that it's the one, if theologians miss the heart, I think they miss it on adoption. The reason for that, uh, and I'm going to just touch on something, I'm not trying to be too technical today. In Roman society, the idea of adoption was, was in a legal sense, translated as this, the placing of mature sons. Now there's a reason for that. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But um, I think that has led some theologians and preachers to say that adoption has to do with us growing up in God and learning to declare the purposes of God, that we are adult sons now and that we are responsible for the administration of the kingdom of God. I don't think, although that is a meaning, one of the meaning, uh, meanings of the word, the idea of adoption in the New Testament is always given in the context of us being newborn. Uh, it's not the placing of adult sons. In fact, I've heard several theologians say that now adoption is not something that happens right away. That only comes with maturity and when you're placed in charge of things. I understand and I don't think their heart is evil, but I do think they are wrong. Adoption has to do with us being born. It has to do with the picture of us being able to cry out, Daddy, Father. It's not the words of a 60-year-old man. I mean, a 60-year-old man can do that, but that's not the response. If adoption was only about mature sons being placed, there's two problems with it. Please don't be offended by this because I'm talking about every other church in America, not ours. But most Christians don't grow to maturity. I mean, they don't, and maybe ours too, I don't know. But most Christians don't grow to maturity. Most Christians, when we get to heaven, our biggest regret is not going to be that we didn't get the gift of prophecy and win the lottery. Our biggest regret is not going to be who we married or who we didn't marry or this, that, or the other. Our biggest regret is going to be when we see 
how our life was meant to be lived and we didn't do it. It won't be condemning, um, but it will be sobering. I've often wondered if when God said he'll wipe away all tears, I've often wondered if the last tears will be at the judgment seat of Christ where we will be judged for how we live the life against how we were meant to live the life. I've said that when we see him, and I don't mean this to be condemnatory because there's enough condemnation going around without me adding to it, but I am convinced that all of us, when we see him, will be surprised at how little we loved him. You say, well, I love him with all my heart. I know, I hope I do too. I really hope I do. But when we see him as he is, I think everything that has been a struggle for us we're going to say, why? Why was there even a battle? Why was there even struggle? You know, Paul said, I am convinced that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to even be compared to the glory that will be within us. And I think when we see him, I don't think we're going to have to have a con. A conversation with him. I don't think we're going to be assigned a heavenly uh, therapist or counselor. I think we will just know, I think we'll be in awe of the depth of his love for us and we will be overwhelmed with what trivial mess we let keep us from serving him. All of us will be. So I don't think that adoption has to do with us growing up because that would mean that it's the one of all of the other words that are, are not, is not attributable to every, every child of God. But all of these words are saying, this is what you all have experienced or in the process of experiencing. Um, there's a reason for that. In the, in the Roman world, adoption was seen a little different than it is in our world. But I, I, I want to say this before we walk through all of this. I believe that adoption described in scripture is much the same as we see adoption today. Now, I will say this, there are two things that seem uh, contradictory. There's more than two, but these are the most obvious. There is, am I born again or am I adopted? I mean, which is it? Because usually I'm either born into a family or I'm adopted into a family, but it's not usually both. I've, I've heard preachers say, well, the Jews are born into the family and Gentiles are adopted into the family. Bible doesn't say that. Paul did use an illustration saying we're grafted into the tree, but he also said then that Israel was cut off and that Israel will be grafted back in. We can't make every application mean everything we want it to. I think God is simply saying there's a half dozen ways of looking at what happened to you. When you became a Christian, and adoption is one way, and being born again is another way. So we're going to look today. We've looked at being born again. We've looked at redemption uh, or uh, regeneration, and that's a glorious study. And if that's all we knew about salvation, that would that would sustain us through our lives. But we're also adopted. Now let's read, and then we'll. We're, there are three things that I want to really just try to tie together. I want us to understand the setting of adoption, then I want us to understand the sequence of adoption, and then I want us to understand the significance of adoption. Now, um, let me say this, loved ones, I think 
that we are in a culture right now that sees adoption. And, and, and again, I don't mean to be belligerent in saying this, but unless you've been an adoptive parent yourself or unless you've been adopted, I'm not sure that we have a clear, as clear an understanding as we need to have on the beauty of adoption. We, are, we in our culture have almost have almost said that an adopted child is somehow a second-class child. And that's foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. I am an adoptive parent, and I, have parent, uh, I am a parent of natural-born children. I have adopted grandchildren, and I have grandchildren that are natural-born. And I want to tell you, I have seen life from both sides, and an adopted child is not less. An adopted grandchild is not less. You say, well, it's different. Well, not really. Not really. Um, and now I know there are dysfunctional families. There are dysfunctional families. They don't know how to be parents. They don't know how to be grandparents. I know that. But I'm not trying to defend dysfunctional families. I'm talking about the heart of a loving father, the heart of a loving mother, the heart of a loving grandfather, loving grandma. Uh, they, they do not traffic in differences. They don't traffic in this is one thing, this is another thing. Um, you, in fact, if you adopt children, you will be surprised how little the idea of adoption even comes to mind. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but let's read Galatians 4, verses 3 through 7. And I only said all of that because I want us, if we can understand what adoption really means, we'll never doubt that we're loved ever again in our lives. Never will we doubt that we are loved again in our lives if we understand the beauty and the power that's behind adoption. Even so, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Why? that we might receive the adoption of sons. Not that we might attain to the adoption of sons, but that we might receive the adoption of sons. And when does this happen? Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Paul makes it clear to the Galatians that the moment you were saved and the moment the Spirit entered into your life, the Spirit of adoption also entered your life. And you don't say, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying this, but you don't have to address God as most holy, sovereign God of the universe. He is that. And there's nothing wrong with praying that way. But the cry of that adoptive heart is immediately, Habba, Hab, Father, Daddy. That happens immediately, and it's not something that you attain to by growing in maturity. Romans 8.15 puts it this way. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, let's set the stage. I want you to understand that our culture, and, and, and let me say this, we need to be careful because we live in a culture, and it's even bled into the churches. There is an absolute demonic assault. People turn, you know, green in the face 
and their veins stick out on their forehead and they'll yell and they'll do all kinds of things. And the thing that seems to trigger it over and over again is when a church takes a position of being pro-life. This culture despises pro-life. And the church in general despises pro-life. And we have fallen into the teaching of Moloch that has us somehow believe that the slaughter of innocence is nothing. And I want to tell you, I, I take more kicks to the head than this than anything else. But I want to tell you there is something about the, uh, the, the quest for life and family that hell absolutely hates. And whether it's in politics or whether it's in a church or whether it's in whatever institution, there is a vicious attack that will not let a pro-life statement, I'm not talking about political pro-life, although that's part of it, that will not let a pro-life statement go unattacked. And the thing that frightens me is not that the world does it. The thing that frightens me is not that politicians do it, is that we have not driven that unbelief out of the church yet. We've not driven it out of our hearts yet. So we prefer attainments and accomplishments instead of family. And we don't treat the church as family because all we have to do is get mad enough and we'll change families. We'll change church. We'll stop going because we don't understand the nature of assault that is on a message of life. And that's why we have adoption ministries in our church. We believe that God honors the quest for life. We believe that God honors the placing of families. But I want to tell you, it is a fight. It is a fight. And um, oh, I better not go any deeper into that because it's just, it, it won't take us anywhere but overtime. Um, but because in our society, because of abortion, because of, I, I'm talking about worldwide, uh, because of forced limitations. For instance, in China, in the history of China, there was a time you were allowed to have two children, then a time you only could have one child. After that, you were faced with forced abortion or forced sterilization. And then infertility, that seems to be on the rise. It has created a culture favorable to adoption in many circles. And the cry for adoption is related to the idea of a longing for family. Now I know what I'm talking about. I know what it's like to deal with infertility as a family for years. You say, Pastor, you got children all over the place. Yeah, I, th I think when Ramona basically ended up pregnant for five years and they told us we'd never have children, as she's going through labor, she looks at me and says, you know, I think we can safely say the Lord has healed us. You know, and. And she was right, but I know what we went through with that struggle for infertility. And I know what, it, what we went through trying to process the possibilities of adoption. And I want to tell you, an adoptive parent doesn't care about the color of the child. Doesn't care if the child has handicaps. Doesn't care if the child is, is from this country or that country. Because the overwhelming drive for family transcends any, quote, risk whether the risk is legitimate or not. And uh, the desire for family is at the heart of the matter when we discover that one of the ways God explains salvation, of all the things he could have used, one of the things he used is he says, I want you to understand the great love of God. You have been adopted. You have been adopted 
into the family of God. Now, I want us to understand adoption. I've mentioned it already about the placing as adult sons does not mean adoption is only a legal standing <coughs> through a due process and awarded at maturity. It is clearly identified in scripture as something that occurs early on. We cry out for our Abba as a result of the earliest moments of receiving salvation. Now, I want to read three paragraphs to you. Do you have this in your notes? I think you do. It says to adopt someone. Okay, good. Then I'll just read it quickly. To adopt someone is to make that person, um, and this is from GodAnswers.org. Um, it was the best simple explanation that I could find, so I, I footnoted it there. To adopt someone is to make that person a legal son or daughter. Adoption is one of the metaphors used in the Bible to explain how Christians are brought into the family of God. Jesus came that we might receive adoption to sonship. You see, you say, well, we got saved when we first believed in Jesus, but then we've got to grow. That's true. But we received adoption when we received sonship. Okay. Um, and he was, uh, he was successful. Paul says, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. The Bible, second paragraph, also uses the metaphor of being born again into God's family, which seems to be at odds with the concept of adoption because normally either a person is born into a family or adopted, not both. We shouldn't make too much of the difference, however, because both of these concepts are metaphors and should not be played against each other. Now, here's an interesting paragraph. In the Roman world, adoption was a significant and common practice. You say, Pastor, you told us that infanticide was all over the, the, the Roman world, and, and it was, but they also uh, had frequent adoption, but it was for a little different reason. Listen, today or at least in our country, we can write a will and leave our wealth and property to anyone we want, male or female. In the Roman world, with few exceptions, a man had to pass his wealth on to his sons. If a man had no sons, or if he felt that his sons were incapable of managing his wealth or were unworthy of it, he would have to adopt someone who would make a worthy son. These adoptions were not usually infant adoptions, as is common today. Older boys and adult men were normally adopted. In some cases, the adoptees might even be older than the man who was adopting him. When the adoption was legally approved, the adoptee would have all his debts canceled and he would receive a new name. He would be the legal son of his adoptive father and entitled to all the rights and benefits of a son. A father could disown his natural born son, but an adoption was irreversible. That is very important when you think about why God chose this idea of adoption. I know when I adopted my child, the, the probate judge said, Reverend Chitty, Mrs. Chitty, I want you to understand the laws of this state. This child is your child as though he were born naturally to you. There's no distinction. There's no difference. He said, there's only one difference and one only in this state that you need to observe. And I couldn't imagine what it was. He said, I want you to understand when you get ready to die and you make your will, I don't know if you ever get ready to die, but 
He said, when you make your will, he said, you don't have to leave anything to your children. You don't have to leave anything to any of your children. But if you leave anything to one of your children, it must not exclude an adopted child. Now, you can exclude natural born children, but you can't exclude an adopted child because adoption is so special in our state that when you say this child is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, you lose the right to write them off. Now, aren't you adopted children happy? That's the way it was in Rome. Now, here's in the, the next paragraph is what I want to communicate. So Christians have been born into God's family. God's using a Jewish metaphor then. It was understood by the people of Israel. They were all about their birth, natural birth, and their generations before them. It was so important for the generations to continue that if a man died without a son, uh, his, one of his brothers, and I know it sounds like a soap opera in our culture, but one of his brothers had to marry his widow and the first son would belong to the dead brother. So the name could be carried forward. Uh, the Jews were all about the birth of the family. But God said, Christians have been born into God's family, a new birth. That's what the Jews would understand. But when Paul was writing to all of those Gentile Christians that were, that were slowly but surely and then eventually quickly outnumbering Jewish converts, he said, you've also been adopted into God's family using a Roman metaphor. Why did he do two metaphors that seem to contradict each other? Because he was speaking one to one culture, he was speaking one to the other culture. Both cultures could embrace it, but the cultures had the system they understood better than the other. But the end result, now hear this, the end result is the same. When you become a Christian, you are forever part of God's family. You are not second class. You are not plan B. You are forever God's family and he is forever your father. Now, we said we wanted to talk about the setting and sequence and significance of adoption. That's the way Dr. Hull presents it in his book. And I thought that was a good outline, uh, and even though I'm, I'm approaching it a little bit differently. Either illustration of adoption or new birth focuses on family. So whether from the Jewish mindset or the Roman understanding, this is the idea of adoption. This is what adoption means. You have been chosen by God, new birth or adoption. You have been chosen by God. And number two, you are forever a full part of God's family. That's the setting of adoption. Um, there's more I want to say about that, but let's wait till the Christian life lessons. Number two, we want to understand the sequence of adoption. Loved ones, this is so vital because some people believe that an adopted child is a plan B. Uh, you know, I, we, we haven't been able to have a baby, so we'll just adopt a couple of kids until then. Oh, what a silly attitude. 
as though that we can't have natural children, so we're going to go with plan B. We're going to adopt children. Now, there's nothing wrong with realizing infertility and then making plans for adoption. That's one of the wisest decisions you can make. But loved ones, I can tell you as someone who has adopted, I can tell you as someone whose grandchildren, some of them are adopted, there is no difference and there's no even remote inclination to think that this is plan B. This is less than what plan A would have given us. And again, I know there are dysfunctional people and dysfunctional families, but if there's anybody that ought to be loved, it's a person that has been adopted or a person who is adopting because that shows something of the love of God and the nature of his decisions. Um, when we talk about the sequence of adoption, when I say it's not plan B, you need to understand and I need to understand what Paul said. Adoption has always been God's plan. Always. Genesis 4, 1 through 5, God's plan was always to bring us into an inheritance. And literally, one translation puts it this way, God designated us in advance for adoption. Before the foundation of the world, God said, I'm going to adopt this group of people that will follow the teachings of Messiah. Ephesians 1.5 reflects God's eternal plan. One Greek translation puts it this way. He adopted us to make us his and no one else's children. What an amazing thing. God said, before you were ever born, before I created this universe, I had a plan. And that plan was called adoption. Now adoption also works in the present. Remember we talked about the tenses of salvation. Um, we know, how do we know that we've received adoption in the present? Because it is by receiving his spirit into our hearts that we call him Abba, Father. Loved ones, the moment you came to Jesus, whether it was in children's church or a Billy Graham crusade or watching someone on television or on Sunday morning here, sitting at your neighbor's coffee table, whenever you accepted Jesus, you knew that you were accepted because the Spirit of God, Paul said, His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are the children of God. What is that wonderful connection called where I know I was lost, but now I'm saved? What is that called? It's called the Spirit of Adoption. You've been adopted into His family, and you call God Father, Abba, Hop. You call Him that <coughs> because He has put a spirit of adoption in your heart. Romans 8, 15, <coughs> excuse me. Um, well, Galatians 4, 5, and 6, we've received adoption because receiving a spirit into our hearts, we call him father. Romans 8, 15, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's spirit. When did I receive God's spirit? You say, well, when I became a Christian, when I got saved. Another way of putting it is this, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Adoption is not something that awaits you. <coughs> Adoption is not something that is plan B. Adoption was God's plan all along. And the, the experience we have right now is the work of adoption working in our hearts. Now, adoption also has a place in the future. <coughs> Excuse me, Romans 8.23 says that this Holy Spirit that has come in by the spirit of adoption 
is a foretaste of future glory. As his child, we're going to inherit the fullness of the kingdom of God. But this thing we're living now, the Christian life, it is God saying, look, it's not over. The work is not finished. As far as I'm concerned, it's finished because I will complete what I have begun. But I want you to know that even though you are adopted, you are just experiencing a foretaste of what is to come. Heaven is greater than we can possibly imagine. And God says, the spirit of sonship where I have adopted you is just a foretaste of that glory. Now, the third thing we said is, what is the significance of adoption? It's the same as the new birth. It's the same as being born again. I have a new father and I have a new family. A new father and a new family. Now, I want us to jump right into the Christian life lessons because there are several of them. And um, I'm doing this message a little bit different. It's a little lighter on the front end. And we're going to focus more on Christian life lessons. There are six of them that are vitally important. And um, I, I, they, they, some of them have a little repetition from what we've said. But it's important. And that's why. It's by design. Um, number one, we must understand the heart of God for family. For family. Now, I know there are other analogies and metaphors in the Bible. We are God's building. Uh, we are God's army. We are God's field. We are God's, you know, the body. We're, we're a, a body together. There are a lot of metaphors that God uses, a lot of analogous comparisons that he makes. But from beginning to end, hands down, um, the, the thing he relates to us most as, now the thing he calls us most is servant, but the thing that he relates to us most as is family, family. And we've got to understand the heart of God for family. When Paul was writing to Timothy, and Timothy was at a church that was world famous, and we read about its origin in the book of Acts, and we read about its decline in the book of Revelation. But that church had such a history, it was the church at Ephesus. And this is what Paul told Timothy to do. He said, when you relate to the congregation there, he said, don't treat this as a business. Don't treat them as your clientele. Don't treat them as your constituency. Don't treat them as anything except what they are, family. He said this, he said, when you relate to the older men of the church. He said, don't talk to them like they are stupid or that they, their time has come and gone. With gray hair is wisdom and with long life is understanding. He said, so whenever you are having to navigate some currents with older men, he said, this is how you view them. You view them as you would your father. Always treat them with respect. You view them as your father. I remember when I was in seminary, uh, Terry Wasden, my friend, dropped me off at my grandmother's house and I took my bag in and I had a book that I was reading in the car. And the book was, the name of the book was um, um, The Handbook of Biblical Criticism. Now, what that book was about was how different theologians view the scripture, higher criticism, lower criticism, how you deal with it. A very, very good book. Very helpful book because I didn't come from a high church and I didn't have a lot of uh, literary criticism understanding. We just believed the Bible was, the God, it was God's word and that's it. I still believe that. 
but you would not believe the way my grandmother talked to me when I brought into her house a book called The Handbook of Biblical Criticism. She said, what is this? I said, oh, it's just one of my books I had to have read. I have to have it read before the next class starts. It's Christmas break, if I remember correctly. She says, she threw it and said, don't you bring such nonsense into my house. I said, grandmother, you don't understand. And you don't tell somebody on a rampage that they don't understand. <laughs> she said, I just sent money to you to help you through school. And you spend it learning how to criticize the Bible. Now, she only sent me $5, but that was, now you got to tell me $5 in was a lot more. You could go to Red Lobster and eat everything but the Admiral's Feast for less than $5, you know. So it was a long time ago. It was when money was real. And uh, I appreciated it, but I said, I said, no, grandmother. And she kept saying things that, if, if, can I be frank? It was exposing her ignorance about the topic. She had never heard the phrase biblical criticism unless someone was criticizing the Bible. And I got more and more exasperated. She accused me of things that I'd never even thought of doing, made me guilty of sins that had never even been tempted for. And we're not, in our house, we're not going to stand for the criticism of the Bible. And I started to say, Grandmother, if you would just listen to me, I can explain this. And... Um, I said, if she'll stop talking, I can straighten this whole thing out. And I felt something rise up in me. And it said, don't you embarrass your grandmother. And I thought, I didn't say it, I thought, well, she's embarrassing me. You know, turnabout's fair play. But you know, it wasn't. And I, I remembered the scripture. I remember the scripture. Paul said, treat the older men like you would treat your father. Treat the older, men, uh, older women like you would treat your mother. And I thought, I would not want my mother embarrassed for anything in the world. I would not talk down to my mother for anything in the world. He said, so what did you do? I let her give me a lecture, which to tell you the truth was a pretty good sermon. <laughs> she was right in what she said. It was just, you know, it was the right sermon, wrong book, you know. She said, I want you to promise me you'll throw that book away and, and you'll never read another word in it. And I did. I threw it away. Uh, but I had to have it for class, so I bought another copy and I read that copy instead of the old copy. And my grandmother never forgot the time she saved my soul from becoming a heretic and an apostate. You say, well, you should have straightened her out. I know. No, that woman loved God. That woman loved the word. That woman loved the things of the spirit. Oh, are you ready for this one? Uh, Terry and I had heard this somewhere else, so I couldn't believe my grandmother said it. She said, I raised you to say Holy Ghost. Next thing you know, you'll be saying Holy Spirit. <laughs> We had heard that twice, so we knew it must be a, one of the latest theological trends. But you know what? What the Lord taught me that day is it's more important to be loving than to be vindicated. And 
I let my grandmother win that battle. And you know what? Till the day she died, I think she always had great love for my ministry because she saved me from apostasy. And you know what? She probably did. Not, not from that, but, but in a half dozen other ways. You see, God is going about telling Timothy what we need to understand. He said, the younger men, he said, treat them not as your adversaries, treat them as your brothers. The younger women, don't view them sexually. I mean, your wife's another matter, he says. I mean, it was implied. But he says, don't view them as less. Treat them like you would treat your sisters. See, God said for the church to work right, it has to operate as a family, not a business, not committees, not these other things that have a place. He said family is priority. We must understand the heart of God is for family. Now in the past, before we were saved, God viewed us and dealt with us as sinners. In the future, when we are judged and rewarded for our works, we're going to be judged as servants. We're going to be judged as servants. How well did we do what we were commanded to do? I was a sinner. I will be a servant as far as God's perspective. But right now in this thing called life, this great period between salvation and reward, God says the way I treat you is as a son. I treat you as family. Now number two, <coughs> we must understand the idea of adoption is not plan B. I can tell you, and I don't mean to, there's, there's few things more demeaning than for you to say to somebody, you just don't understand. You've never been where I've been. Well, you need to understand the people you're talking to are not stupid. People don't have to experience what you've experienced to understand what you're saying. Now, they may not understand the depth of it. They may not understand the passion behind it. But uh, that's, that's the thing that our society is is really locked into today. If you don't agree with me on everything, if you haven't been through what I've been through, you can't possibly understand. No, you, you've got a lot more allies than you think you have. But the point I want to make is this. There are some dynamics of truth that you can't understand if you haven't been through something. Now that's hurtful. Uh, you know, to tell somebody you've never had any children, that's hurtful to them. And, and you, you, you should never say things like that. Or, or, you know, you've never been sick like I've been sick. Well, that may be true. But again, that doesn't mean they can't understand sickness. So we have to be very careful when we take that approach. Man, it's quiet in here. <laughs> Justin, what did you do? But I am speaking from the perspective of barrenness. I'm speaking from the perspective of infertility. I'm speaking from the great desire for family. And I'm speaking from some, the perspective of somebody that has embraced uh, adoption on multiple levels. And I want to say this. Those who have experienced adoption know there is no difference between a natural born child and an adopted child. In fact, I cannot imagine God answering my prayers for us to be fertile. I, I, it, it, it went on for years. God, why don't you answer this prayer? Why, 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 why? I remember a woman on her way to abortion and I begged her. I got on my knees and begged her don't abort this baby. We will take this baby. Don't do what you're about to do. And she went on the next day and did it anyway. I, I, 
I, I, I wasn't worried about not loving an adopted baby the way I ought to. And I said, God, why aren't you answering our prayers? And I want to tell you something. When I received, put that son in my arms for the first time, and it has done nothing but grow through the years, I am so thankful God said no. I am so thankful that God didn't let me bully him by my faith. I'm so thankful that he said, no, we're going to go this way, not this way. I can't imagine God saying yes to my prayers as heartfelt and as noble and as good as they were. Because God knew that this path was going to open something up for a child. It was going to open up something for us that we would be miserable if we had missed. I can't imagine life. I can't fathom life without my adopted child any more than I can fathom life without my natural born children. I can't fathom life without my adopted grandchildren any more than I can fathom life from my natural born grandchildren. I want to tell you adoption is not plan B. Adoption is God said, this is what I'm gonna do. You wanna know how much I love you? You want to know why John wrote in his epistle, behold what otherworldly kind of love the Father has bestowed on us? He said, maybe if you can understand that I adopted you, you can understand the depth of the love. Now that's not to be critical of those that have not adopted. Anytime you talk like this, it's, it, it, you're walking through a minefield of people just ready to be offended. But please understand, I'm not trying to put anything down. I'm trying to show you the beauty of adoption. It was never plan B. Number three, we must understand that all believers have been adopted, Jew and Gentile alike. You see, uh, I've even heard people preach that, well, the Jews were the people of God by birth, and God loved us so much that he adopted us in with them. No, we're all adopted. It was a token of his love to Jew and Gentile alike. When I was in seminary, I had a friend that was a New Jersey Jew, converted Jew, or, or maybe I should say Messianic Jew. He was very much into his Jewish heritage. His name was very Jewish. I mean, he was just, he, he, was, he was referred to as the Jew in our classes because that was his whole world. The other friend was an adopted child from the Lillian Trasher orphanage in Egypt. And he looked very much Egyptian. I mean, there was no doubt that he was from an, uh, an Arabic uh, uh, family. And we, you know, in, you've got this fella, you got this fella, and then you got the white boy from West Florida that uh, they, they kept trying to help me speak words using all the syllables. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, my, my Greek professor, he, he, he laughed one day and he said, Stephen, he said, first of all, when you read this back to me, first translate it into English <laughs> and then from English into Greek. And, uh, you know, the three of us were just, we were an oddity. It was, it was like a joke waiting to happen. You know, a Jew, an Arab and a white boy walked into the bar, but we never went into any bars. They were such good friends, and I, I love them. I miss them so much. But there was something that happened. Uh, whenever we would disagree on something, my Jewish friend, he did it jokingly, but this, is, this was his fallback line. This was his default answer. He said, ah, what do you know? You're adopted. 
And he was trying to be funny. And I laughed a couple of times. But you know, that was, you know, what do you know? You're adopted. He was saying, I'm Jewish. I've got the insight. You don't have it. But do you know what God's word tells us? We all need to be born again. And we all need to be adopted. Why else would Jesus tell the Jews of his day that had an, uh, an impressive pedigree, why would he say God is able to raise up children of Abraham out of these stones? He said, Paul said, well, does the Jew have any advantage? He says, yes, the Jew has some advantages. To the Jew was committed the oracles of God. He wasn't trying to be anti-Semitic any, any more than I'm trying to be anti-Semitic. I think the Jews have a great heritage <coughs> and an awesome legacy and the testimony of Israel is phenomenal. And we ought to continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we have to be careful that we're not one of those churches that lets anti-Semitism creep into our theology. I don't believe in replacement theology. I don't think the church has replaced Israel. But I do want to tell you this. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, you have to be born again. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, you have to be adopted. So my friend ended every argument by saying, you, you're adopted. And, and he, he was good-natured about it. He wasn't trying to be offensive. He was just trying to add humor to an unresolvable situation. <coughs> but I want you to understand you're not second class because you are Gentile, if you're Gentile. Jew and Gentile alike must be born again and must be adopted. Here's number four we must begin to understand the importance of siblings. When you are adopted, you begin to understand how important family is. Uh, you begin to understand what a treasure you have been given. I have brothers, I have sisters, not just new parents, but I have a new name and I have new siblings. That's why the old, uh, excuse me, the New Testament, depending on which translation you read, over a hundred times tells us to live out the Christian life in this, in this way, one another, one another. Be ye kind one to another. Uh, bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Um, in fact, I've, I've never found it, if it exists out there, I've never found a passage of scripture where the word saint is translated singular. The Bible does not operate in terms of a saint. We, we might do that. We may say, oh, Mother Teresa, she's a saint. And I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but we need to understand that saints was plural because the Christian life is designed to be lived out in the community of believers. Now, I know that can be done in a house church. I know that can be done in a large church. That can be done in a small church. But I will tell you this, as we grow, the larger the church, the more important it is for you to be part of a small group the more important our life groups are on Sunday night because there are some things that can happen in small groups that won't happen in a big crowd. And there are some things that can happen in a big crowd won't happen in small groups. But what every child of God needs to understand is we've got to quit getting mad with pastors and we've got to quit getting mad with district people and we've got to quit getting mad with churches and with denominations and maybe even our friends. And we need to understand that we need one another. Pastors need to understand we, you know, 
Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I, I feel like I'm the leader. I feel like God puts his word in my heart and that's the way we go. But I never forget that I am leading a group of people that follow me because they want to. That let me give instruction. I get to give instruction because they let me. <laughs> I, I, I understand this isn't about some hierarchy. This is built on one another built on one another. It's the way families are built. And that's what we're looking for when we understand the meaning of adoption. We're looking for the importance of our siblings. Number five, um, adoption, whether it was in the Roman world or in our present world today, especially private adoption, it is phenomenally expensive. It's not only expensive in the legal process, and that's why we are starting our adoption fund here at the church. We want to make it as easy as possible for people that want to adopt to be able to adopt. We can't foot the bill for everything, but we can help. We can be a part. And I think Corey's going to talk to you all on a Sunday or two um, about how to help with the adoption fund. But the good thing about this adoption is that all the costs have been paid. It's been paid by the blood of Jesus. The spirit is given as a down payment on our inheritance. It's nothing that we earn. That's, that's the biggest problem I have with this teaching of adoption being something we attain to. It's based on your worth, based on your ability, is based on your maturity. And loved ones, you never get past the point of being saved by grace. You never get past being saved by grace through faith, not of works. And um, the, the cost has been paid. And here's the last thing. We must understand that father has already given his best. The problem that some people have when they think of adoption is they think God is scrambling to find a way for us to get in. You know, let me, let me see what I can do. Hey, I know a man, you know, we, we can sign these papers under the table. God has already given his best. He already put all his eggs in one basket. And if you're not careful, you'll think, well, he let me in, but just barely. I was talking to a theologian the other day, used this phrase in his book. He said, are people who believe this saved? He said, yes, but barely. And we had a, probably a 45-minute talk on, I mean, he, he had asked my opinion. I wasn't calling up, picking a fight. But I said, do you understand how offensive it is to the grace of God to say that someone's barely saved? Just barely? Well, I think they're almost wrong. I said, we're all wrong. I said, I'm going to let you in on a little surprise. We're not only almost wrong, we are wrong on some things. But that doesn't mean we're almost saved. And I want us to move away from the idea of thinking that because of what I was or what I wasn't, I'm saved, but just, just barely. God has gotten me out of hell, but he doesn't owe me anything else. My life may be all messed up and it may be one disaster after another, but he's already done enough. I don't, I don't want to ask for anything else. Uh, loved ones, do we not understand that he's already given us his best? And I'm not a, a word of faith preacher. I don't believe that God answers every prayer. He's far too smart for that. I don't believe that God gives us everything we want. He loves us too much to do that. I mean, I, I, that's not even a discussion to be had. 
God is sovereign and sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, but it's always for our benefit. Okay, I, I, I don't even have that discussion anymore. But, but I tell you what does happen to us is that we, we think that God has just found a way to get us in. And therefore we're saved, but just barely. And then we say, I can't ask him for anything more. You know, if, if, I, if I go up to Justin and I say, Justin, I've got some friends from out of town. We're going to take them to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. And, and I know it's an expensive place to go there. And this man has nine children, three wives, a chauffeur and two butlers. I want to buy him lunch and I want him to order anything that he wants. And Justin says, well, here, I have this, you know, solid sapphire credit card made out of diamonds and no credit limit and you can spend as much as you want. He says, take this and use it for lunch. And then I realize that it's valet parking only and I need $10. Am I going to say, oh, I can't, I can't ask him for $10. I mean, that would be so presumptuous. He's buying the meal and then to ask for $10, that would be so cheap of me. Do you understand that if Justin has just given me his mega surplus credit card, and it's not only that, it's told me I don't have to ever pay it back. Do you realize that it's not going to be a problem for me to ask if he has a 10 on him? And we need to understand that God has already given you the very best heaven can give. So why do we think that everything else is too much? Why do we think, and it's not the issue of God wants me to have everything I want to have. It's the issue of thinking I'm not worthy. And it's an insult to his grace. God may say no to something, but it's not because you're not worthy. You and I have never been worthy. So why are we worried about not being worthy now? We've never been worthy. Listen to what Paul said to the Romans. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. I mean, if you know, yeah, he's a good guy, but I'm not going to die for him. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Well, Mother Teresa, I'd die for her. You know, Billy Graham, or, well, he's already gone, but yeah, yeah I'd, I'd die for him. But listen to verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ <coughs> to die for us while we were still sinners. This isn't when our Reformation project was completed. This isn't after going to anger management. While we were utterly helpless, God thought I was worth the investment of Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans 8.32, New International Version. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Now, again, we know we're not talking about gimme, gimme, gimme. We're talking about the needs of life. He says, if he's given you Jesus, why in the world would he halt to give you something less that you need? I love the Phillips translation. In 
face of all of this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, and by the way, in Greek, that's called a hina clause. And it's when it says, when, especially when we read it in some of our English translations, it says, if God be for us. And, and then every time somebody says, yeah, if God be for us, the question I got is, is he for us? No, it's not a, if God is for us, it should be translated. I mean, it definitely should be translated, not if God is for us, it should be translated since we know that God is for us. That's the way the clause is to be translated. It wasn't a question. First thing you got to do is get God for you. You know, that's like somebody saying, how to become a millionaire. Here's step one, get a million dollars. No, we know, since we know that God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Can we not trust such a God to give us with him, with Jesus? Can we not trust such a God to give us along with him everything else that we can need? There is no need that God says, hey, that's a bridge too far. Now, again, I want, I want to repeat it one more time. This is not a text to say, oh, God will give me anything I want. No, God will give you anything you need because he's already given us his best, Jesus. I, I, I know it's, we need to end this, but this is the way I want to end this word study today on the process of adoption. First, as always, if there's anyone here, Brown Chapel watching online, that does not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Bible is so gracious. It says, whosoever will may come. He said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Um, you know, and you can pass in a moment's time from death into life. It's not something you got to wait and see. It's not something you've got to hope for. But you can pass from death to life. And it's a very simple process. It's not a simplistic process. But it's a simple process. He made it so easy. He said that we, first of all, my pastor used to call it ABC. And he said this. The A is to admit that I'm a sinner. Don't... don't don't take the brazen approach that says, I'll come to God on my terms. You'll never come to God on your terms and get anywhere. Admit that you're a sinner. Lord, I've broken your law. I've broken your heart. I am a sinner. B, believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he was the full satisfaction, the full payment for our sins. I don't, it's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus. He's the full satisfaction. So I believe that he is my Savior. And he, his shed blood is the only thing that can wash away my sins. And then the C is to confess. That's to confess him as Lord or to live the Christian life. But it's even, even then it's not a, I've got to live it perfectly. It's I've got to put all of my trust in him. Confess him as your Lord. But here's the second thing I want to do. I know there are some of you, and we, we have had to do things differently for two years now because the majority of our congregation is, is, is watching live stream. 
The majority's not here. We got a good number here, but the majority's not here. And we've had to do the way we pray for people differently. But I tell you what I want us to recover. I want us to recover the idea of, of pursuing the Lord, of moving into the altar, of letting Him speak to our hearts. And loved ones, I know that you're not doubting that you're saved. You're not having a crisis of faith. But you are struggling because you are in the fight for your life. I told somebody this week they were having a problem. And I said, i tell you where we are. I think, I think this is, I know it sounds like a cliche. But I said, it's like you're having a struggle. You're having a problem in your home. But it's because you're in uh, a, a, a nation that's in a struggle right now with our division and with the COVID and all of the other things we're wrestling with. So you've got a problem in a problem and then all of this is inside a problem. And that I, I believe with all my heart, we are under assault. I believe that what we are under as a nation and as a church in general, and I see it in so many lives, I've been there right, right there with you. We are experiencing in some measure what was prophesied in Daniel where it said that the job of the Antichrist and his spirit would be to wear down the saints of the Most High. Loved ones, I'm not fussing at you. I've been right there with you. But I've never seen a time of such hopelessness and such despair. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a pandemic, not trying to be funny. And, and I've never seen as many people as deeply groveling with the idea of just give me some hope. You know, give me a chance. And so we've got a problem and a problem and a problem. And loved ones, that's why many of you have said to me, Pastor, I've never been this low. I've never been this discouraged. I've never struggled with some of the basics before. Loved ones, it's not that you're evil. It's not that you're turning from the Lord. You are feeling the pressure of at least three layers of trouble cascading down on you. You say, well, what am I going to do? Realize that God loved you so much, He adopted you. He adopted you to make you His one and only, or uh, to make himself your one and only family connection, your one and only tie. And nothing I've said today is a lessening of the natural born in a family any more than what I'm saying is the lessening of being born again. But it's a step further. It's where God says, I will do whatever needs to be done. And I want you to understand this. You will never be jerked out of the family. Jesus said, no one can take you out of my hand. I will always be your father, and this will always be your family. I will always be your father, and this will always be your family. And the enemy is doing everything he can to drive you to other things. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And I'm, again, I'm not fussing at you. I'm talking about the church world. Father, thank you that we have received the adoption of sons. Help us. Please help us. Please lift us out of where we are. Ministry teams, would you come to the front? I know our musical teams are ready, ready to, to lead you in worship. Hey, can I tell you one more thing? One more thing.
and then I will quit. When we adopted our, our child, I, I, I didn't know how we were going to tell him he was adopted, not because it was anything bad. We just didn't know how we were going to do it. And we tried everything, you know, we, we, we tried to make environment the environment in which we live positive about adoption. We, we, watched, uh, we watched movies like The Rescuers from Disney where the quest for that little girl was to be adopted into a family. We tried to do everything right. And I knew when he was about four years old that he, you know, somebody's going to say something to him. We need to figure out how to do this. And I developed, you think I preach long? I had a speech explaining all of this to him. We're driving down the road. We're driving down the road and we're talking about something and little four or five year old Jeremy looks over at me and he says, Daddy, am I adopted? And I've memorized this speech, and here was my response, word for word. Uh, 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 um, yes, that's all I could get out. And you know what this guy did? He looked off into space, and I thought, God, what is going through his little mind? And he does this, as only a four or five-year-old can do. Yes. In his, in his mind, in his mind, and he would have questions about life later, but in his mind, it meant my daddy wanted me. My mama wanted me. And nobody can say anything about that because they didn't have to take me. They wanted me. Loved ones, your daddy wants you. Your daddy loves you. And he didn't have to take you. There was no law of the gods that would have brought him before a council and said, Jehovah, if you don't adopt this person, we're going to bring you up on charges. His own sovereign grace, I choose you. You are wanted by your father. Don't let the devil keep you in your seat. Don't let the devil keep you out of church. Don't let the devil drive you to other things, to alcohol, to drugs, to illicit relationship, whatever it is. He wants you to find something that you think will take the pain out of your life. But only Papa's hug will do that. If you want prayer, we invite you to come, either to receive Jesus or you just need prayer. Others of you may want to just come around the front and as we worship, just pour your heart out. Just pour your heart out to him. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, uh, Pastor, how, you said you've been feeling the same kind of thing. How are you, how are you fighting it? I, I tell you what, I find myself for 20, 30, 40 minutes at a time just going before the Lord and just saying, Father, hold me. Father, hold me. Father, guard my thoughts. Father, guard my mind. Father, let me feel you're refreshing and I worship you and I sing to you. I pour out my heart to you. 
Father, this is bigger than I am, but you have always held me. Hold me now. Stand for me, please, or with me, please. Ministry team is going to lead us into the Lord's presence. The altars are open. If you want to just find a place to pray, just come running. Come running to the altar. Come running to his presence. He's here to help. And I know we haven't preached today about couples who are infertile. It's another message for another time. But I want you to know, as a, as a pastor that knows what it means to be declared infertile and be told you'll never have children, I want you to know that God's heart is for you. I don't know his answer, but he's for you. It may be a miraculous thing. Physically, it could be adoption. I just don't know, but I don't want you to feel held at arm's length. He loves you so much. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today. We love you.